for that reading, and we are transitioning now into the second half of the book of Ephesians. For those of you that are visiting with us, this will hopefully not be uh, jarring for you. We've covered the first half of Ephesians, which is rich in theology and what God has done for us as Christians, how he has united all things in him, and we're going to be talking today about walking in unity. Uh, you may remember last time we talked about the, as Paul transitions into the second half of Ephesians, he talks about walking worthy of the calling to which we've been called, as we just read. And as we talked about that, we mentioned that he begins that with, with the, this idea of unity. Um, we briefly touched upon that and, and how important it is that as we walk as Christians, we're walking not individually, but we're walking collectively as the body of Christ. We don't do this in a vacuum. We don't do it in solitude. People may say, well, I don't have to be a part of a church to, to walk with Christ. I can go out into nature. I can go fishing. and I can worship God as I'm reeling in a 10-pound bass. Uh, I can be whatever I, I want to be. Uh, being part of a church, being part of a body isn't important. And as Paul begins in saying, because of all this rich theology I've just laid on you, this foundation I've laid, walk worthy of that, the very first thing he starts with is unity. And we mentioned that last time when we talked about how he mentions here uh, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These are all aspects of our relationships, of building relationships with one another because that is what it takes to build unity. And he says, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So as we can be, begin considering our Christian walk in the second half of Ephesians, let's also consider this. Unity is one of the most important keys in that, because we do this together. Now, before we get too far into this, I want to consider this concept because it's very important for us to understand because it really everything is based off what our unity is based in. And God is not interested in unity for unity's sake. He doesn't just want us to be unified. He wants us to be unified in him. And I've used this example before. I'll use it again because, to me, it's the best example we have in Scripture to show this and that is Genesis chapter 11, uh, when the, the progeny of Noah has gone and repopulated the earth. And we'll see what we find there as we start in Genesis 11, verse 1. He says, the whole earth was one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, God wants us to be eager to maintain unity, but unity at what cost? As Noah and his family survived the flood and began to repopulate the earth, eventually they're all still together at this point. And they come to this plane and they decide, hey, we want to we make sure that we, this doesn't break up. We want to keep the band together. We don't want to, everyone to be dispersed across the face of the earth. So let's, let's build a city. Let's build this tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. They were united. Mankind was united here. How did God feel about that? Well, we know how he felt about it. Verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language, and this only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they were supposed to do will be impossible for them. God almost sounds proud of us, right? It almost sounds proud of humankind. Hey, I see what they're doing here. Um, they, they've accomplished a lot. Anything, they, can, they can accomplish anything they put their mind to, almost like a proud parent. But he's not proud. He's disappointed. 
And he says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Why? Why did God break up the unity? Mankind was united. The answer is because God doesn't want us to be unified in things that aren't in him. This was all about making a name for themselves. This was all about them living and, and accomplishing on their, things on their own. And God knew that the things that they really needed to accomplish could only happen through him. So therefore, he dispersed them, confused their languages. So this shows us how God feels about unity. He doesn't just want us to be unified. He wants us to be unified in him. And that's the basis. You know, that was God's plan from the beginning. And as we go through our sermon this morning, we're going to see Paul building on things he's already talked about in the book of Ephesians, as he does here. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, "...making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth." It was God's plan that we be united in him. That was his plan. That was his purpose. Everything that he's done from the foundation of the world was so that all things would be united in him. Not just united. And so we may have a, a church, we may have a congregation that is of one mind, but unless that is based in the authority of God, the authority of Christ, the gospel, it's not a unity that God cares about. The basis of our unity has to be in him. And so he lays out how that works in our lives. He gives us the elements of unity, if you will. And he lists this series of ones that we have. And my initial intention was to, to sort of group these together and talk about them as a whole. But uh, luckily, Carrie asked me to preach this afternoon, and so I'm able to get into more detail uh, without going for an hour or so. So I hope that uh, we can gain something from being able to get into a little bit of detail on these, these elements of unity, if you will, that he talks about here. There's one body, he says in verse 4. One body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so this becomes very repetitive, and it's supposed to be that way. Because the word one indicates unity. Jesus talked about uh, when he said, me and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. They were individual personalities, but one in purpose one in their goals. And so as we consider godly unity within, within the church, this idea of one over and over, it, it, it drives home to us, reinforces this idea of us being unified in God. So he starts off with one body. There's one body. And as we consider the one body, what does that mean? To clarify, Paul specifically states earlier in Ephesians what the one body is. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in case there's any confusion what the body is, he's already told us that the church is the body. We are the body of Christ. That's not something that a lot of people like to hear or consider in this world. And, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, there's, you know, we've got all these denominations. There's hundreds and hundreds of churches in the city of Amarillo alone. And, you know, most people will consider all of those churches to be part of the one church, but you're going to get into those churches and you're not going to find unity there. 
you're going to find lots of disagreements about what God has done for us, how we go about obtaining salvation, the proper way to worship. Is that unity? Is that what we find to be the truth of God's Word everywhere? It's not a very popular thing to talk about, is it? But it's very clear from this passage and others in the New Testament, there is one body. That means there's one church. That is the unifying factor that starts this whole thing. We are unified in the body of Christ. Paul has just spent three chapters talking about God's purposes and plans, his, his power, his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and exalted him to his throne. And he did so so he would bring Jew and Gentile together into the family, the household of God. And that's why he's reinforcing that with this idea of unity. And it starts with the body of Christ because that's who we are. That is the family of God. That is the church of God. And that's where our unity starts. And again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, He Himself is our peace, who has made, both one, made us both one and broken down His flesh in the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's talking about bringing Jew and Gentile together and making peace between them. And now He's going to talk about making peace between God and man and might reconcile us both in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ is our peace. Peace between Jew and Gentile, peace between God and man. God didn't make peace between the Gentiles and God, or Christ didn't do that. Christ didn't make peace between the Jews and God. He made peace between the household of God and God. He brought us together into one body. And that's where our unity starts. It, our unity starts when we come together as God's family. That's what it's based in. There is one body. Number two, there's one spirit. We can't underestimate the work of the Holy Spirit in our unity. And there's nothing miraculous in that. It's not talk, we're not talking about uh, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was experienced by the, the disciples in Acts 2 and Acts 10. We're not talking about any kind of miraculous application of the Spirit. It's simply the promises that we have in the Scripture of the Holy Spirit and His involvement in our unity. And it can, we cannot underestimate that. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talked about this in verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we, require, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So this is the Part of the Holy Spirit's role in all this, and as you read through these first 14 verses of Ephesians, Paul's beautiful explanation of God's blessings, included in that is the work of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role in that, or at least partially his role, is that of a seal, of a promise, a guarantee. Some versions say an earnest of our inheritance. It's been a while since I bought my house, and I hope it's a while before I have to do that again. What I usually remember about the times that I've done that is a, sort of a hollow pit in my stomach for a couple of weeks as I realized how much money I've committed to spending. But, you know, when you, when you buy a house, you often have to put down earnest money. It's a, it's a guarantee. It's basically a promise saying, I'm committing myself to this 15-year or 30-year mortgage, and I'm, I'm serious about this, and I'm going to follow through on this. Hey, the Holy Spirit... We were sealed with the Holy Spirit when we obeyed the gospel as God's promise of this isn't the complete fulfillment. 
You're going to have eternal life one day. You're going to receive all the promises that you've been given. And here's the Holy Spirit as a seal, as, a, as an earnest of that expectation. And that's something else that unites all of us as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, it says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The Holy Spirit is key in this as well, in our access to God, not only in our initial salvation, but as we access the Father, as we approach his throne in prayer, Jesus is our advocate, but that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. It says through him, he's talking about Christ, through him, we both have access to, in one spirit to the Father. So we see the Father, the Son, the Spirit. In him, it's talking about Christ there. He, he's the one that made peace. And so we see the role of the Holy Spirit. That access, it makes us his children. It makes us members of the household of God where we find unity. And so that's why that's so important. He talks about the one hope that we have. What is hope? It's our hope of salvation through Jesus Christ, the hope, that hope should be the driving force, the impetus of what moves us forward and what causes us to, to continue to take the next step and the next step. That hope that we cling to. You know, Paul talked about that in chapter 1 here, as you see on the board. We talked about this, this prayer that Paul prays in the back half of chapter 1. And, and part of that was that he says, I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened there in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? He wanted them to know that and to cling to that hope and to hold on to that hope. Why? Because that's our motivation. That's what brings us together, both individually and collectively. Our hope in what is to come. And if you'll notice how these things sort of build upon each other, we become members of the body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that, the fulfillment of that hope. And there's the hope that we want to cling to. That hope that one day we're going to receive the full reward that the Holy Spirit has promised us. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He talks about being steadfast, stable, continuing in the faith. How does that happen? You don't shift away from the hope of the gospel. The message of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the power in that, our hopelessness without that, and now the hope that we have because of that. Don't shift away from that, Paul says. If you don't shift away, then you will continue in the faith. You'll be stable. You'll be steadfast in your, in your service to God, in your walk with Christ, and in your unity with one another. He talks about one Lord. Who's the one Lord? You know, the, the world uses the phrase, and we use it too. I use it. We talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's kind of a, a buzzword of Christianity, really. I know it's probably found in the Bible somewhere, and, and certainly it is true. Jesus is our Lord, and he is our Savior. But, you know, a lot of people use that phrase, and they, they toss it around rather frivolously, in my opinion, because they, what they're really focusing on is the fact that Jesus is their Savior, but they don't really like to think a whole lot about the fact that Jesus is their Lord. In fact, we all do that from time to time. We all live our lives as if he's not our Lord. 
what does it mean that Jesus is our Lord? In Ephesians chapter 1 again, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated in his right hand in the heavenly places. That powerful work that God did, what did that do? It put him, verse 21 says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. What does that mean? That means Jesus is Lord. It means he has ultimate authority, ultimate power, And if we claim him as Lord, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and do not the things which I say? That's something that should unify us. The fact that Jesus is our Lord. The fact that each one of us in the church claims him as Lord and then does what he tells us to do because of that. We have to be unified in that. That has to be part of our unifying walk. If we're not, then we're not unified in him. As individuals, we may call him Lord and Savior, but is he really? Do we really place ourselves under his authority? Do we really put ourselves and trust in him and have faith in him as our Lord? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. I really like this passage a lot. I have spent a lot of time studying it, and I came across it as I was putting this together. We're going to look at this twice, actually, because it refers to both the one Lord and one God. But there's, there's an interesting parallel that's going on here, an interesting uh, sort of repetition or reflection, if you will. First uh, Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I'm sure that our brother Danny's going to cover this as he goes through 1 Corinthians, so I don't want to get into too great a detail, but just in case there's any confusion as to who the Lord is, here you go. It's Jesus Christ. Have you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? And by extension to that, have we collectively as a congregation made Jesus the Lord of our lives? One faith. You know, faith is an interesting topic, and we talk about it a lot, how certain people define faith. Atheists outside of Christianity will define faith as, you know, a blind obedience without proof. I've even heard Christians make the statement of, well, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And because they, they buy into this, this theory, this idea, this concept that, that faith is something that we just accept without evidence, without proof. That is not at all what faith is. And faith is not simply believing in God, not simply believing that he exists, not simply believing that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not just mental consent. What is faith? It's faith in the gospel. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's our belief, our hope, and our trust, our response to that, our obedience to that, all put together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And I think this is a, a really important aspect for us to kind of zoom in on this morning. Especially this afternoon, we're going to talk about the diversity of gifts and talents and, and how diversity contributes to our unity. But our faith is what levels the playing field. And especially this concept of, of our faith giving us access to God's grace. 
Because how does, God, how does God view us? Obviously, the whole reason that Jesus came to this earth was because we couldn't save ourselves. We don't deserve salvation. And so that's why Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 2 about the salvation that we have through grace. For by grace you have been saved. You don't deserve it. But it comes through faith. It comes through how we view that gift, how we accept and receive that gift, how we respond to that gift. It is not your own doing. And it doesn't matter how good we think we are. It doesn't matter as we look around at our brethren, at other people in the world, as we consider, well, I'm I'm not as bad as that person is. It doesn't matter. None of us deserve this. And our faith is a unifying factor in that. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. In order to come to God, in order to receive his grace, you have to have faith in him. And that encompasses the teachings that center around the gospel. Doctrine, our worship, morality, all that comes together in our faith in God. But we don't want to forget the whole counsel of God, do we? As we mentioned, it's more than just simply believing. James says in James 2 verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's not just saying I believe. It's not just saying I believe. He says, you know, earlier in this chapter or or in this chapter, he says, you believe there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. It's not just simply acknowledging who God is, even what he's capable of. It's following through on that. And we do that individually, and we do that collectively. There is one faith. And that leads us to one baptism. The act of faith, the initial act of faith that brings us together into the body of Christ. I was talking to Trevor a couple of weeks ago about this passage, and he mentioned that he had listened to a radio program or a podcast where a preacher was talking about this list of of ones, these unifying elements. And he talked about how he went into very great detail in all these things, Uh, the the one body, the one spirit, one hope, one Lord. And he says he he got to one baptism, and the guy said, I don't really know why it's on this list. (laughs) And I'm paraphrasing a secondhand story here, so take that for what it is. But the guy was basically like, I don't know why baptism's on this list. Because I don't see it as that important, but it's here, so it must be important. Because this culture, this idea that, that baptism is not a contribution to our salvation is so pervasive in Western Christianity, all Christianity, really. This idea that it's just not that important. I was reading one commentary that I have, and it can be actually a very Calvinistic commentary from time to time. I've got to be pretty careful about what I what I take out of that, but there's some good ideas sometimes. And, and even these Calvinists writing this commentary said, the only conclusion we can draw is this is talking about water baptism. People say, oh, it's baptism of the Holy Spirit, or it's just the spiritual baptism. It's a, and even they would say it's an outward sign of what happens inwardly, but even they can't deny that it's talking about water baptism. And that's because we are united in the same thing, no matter where we come from. No matter what our background, we take a look at this list, we take a look at who we are, no one comes to Christ 
without having faith in him and without being obedient to the gospel. And it's in the act of baptism where the playing field is leveled. It's through our individual participation in this cleansing. Not the water, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in that act that we find unification in the family of God. And it's important that we consider that. Notice the connections he's making here. It's very similar ideas and concepts as, he, as he's talking about this, this concept of baptism. But we have one body, one spirit. We were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit, he says there. What, are, what other thing could he be talking about? I don't understand why it's so important. Well, it's so important because that's the, that's the thing we share. That's the thing we have in common. That's what makes us all brothers and sisters. That's what brings us together. Colossians 2, verse 11 and 12, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Being raised with Christ through faith in the act of baptism. Notice these same words over and over. Faith, One faith. We talked about this connection last time, I think, about this connection between uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 and 10 and so on, and this passage here, being raised with Christ. That happens at the act of baptism. And we should consider that just as important as everything else on this list. Finally, there's one God. And I think this is probably the least controversial thing on this list. I think that most people in Christianity are going to confess that there's one God. I think, in fact, other religions are going to tell you there's one God, whether you're looking at Muslims or whatever the case might be. Most people are going to acknowledge there's one God, unless you're into Hinduism and stuff like that. We don't have a problem believing there's one God, but I think it's also the most important thing for us to consider this morning about the role that God plays in our unification, because none of this is possible without the one God that we serve. His role in that, and, and his relationship to us, his relationship to the universe, and the very, very small part we play in that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, again, as we read earlier, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. There's some interesting parallels here as he talks about one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And as he talks about the Father here, he again says, one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And so there's a very similar sort of reflection going on there, or a rhyming, if you will, between these two passages. And as I consider these um, these all statements that he makes here. There's four all statements he makes about the one God that we serve. They're important aspects to all those, I think. The father of all. We're not talking about God and his role as the creator of all humankind. Remember, Paul has been talking about God's plan and purpose of bringing us together into the household of God as God's family. And so he is our father in the household of God, the body of Christ, the church. And so his role as our father is one of the most important unifying factors, arguably the most important unifying factor of all this. He's overall, I think this speaks to God's transcendence, the fact that he exists outside of time and 
in this universe. God created this universe. He exists outside of it, but yet also exists within it. And as we see through us and in us and all that, God's just the fact that God is over everything. I think a lot of times we, for, we, we, I don't know if we forget about it, but we just don't really consider just the significance of how big God really is. And the fact that we, we, we say that we believe that he created this entire universe that we live in, that it was not in existence before God created it. And so he exists outside of that, outside of time. But that's the God that we serve. That's the God that we're unified in. He exists through all. Though he exists outside the universe, he also exists in us. He has sovereignty. He has power. He has control. He didn't create this universe and then just say, well, we'll let the chips fall where they may. No, he had to design. He had a plan. He had a purpose. Many of those things we've talked about in the book of Ephesians. And he has complete sovereignty in that. Authority, power, control. And he's in all, or in you all, as some versions say. And I think this indicates to us an, an intimacy, uh, a closeness to God. What exactly he means to us. You know, the, there are different passages of Scripture that talk about God dwelling within us, the Father dwelling within us, the Son dwelling within us, the Spirit dwelling within us. There's an intimacy there, and the, the wither twos and the why fours of, of what the indwelling means in any of those cases is, is hotly debated and not really relevant this morning, to be honest with you. The fact that we have a God that, that dwells among us and dwells with us, and that's a unifying factor in our walk with him. And as we consider these elements of, of unity that we've covered, these seven one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. How that fits into our lives as Christians, how that fits into our lives together as a unified body of Christ. I want to consider one more thing as we close this morning, and that is the source of our unity. And so Paul is about to, to transition into this, this concept of diversity of gifts and talents, and, and we're going to get to that this afternoon. But as we close this morning, I want to consider what he says here, verses 7 through 10. There's a lot going on here, and in all honesty, you don't have time to really dig deep into this, but I think we can get the main thrust of it uh, here pretty quickly. Verse number seven says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Paul is, in part of this passage, he's quoting from the book of Psalms. Um, and as we see this here, Psalm 68, verse 18, is generally the, the reference you're going to find in your Bible. That If you've got a reference Bible, it's going to point to Psalm 68, verse 18, where it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. But if you kind of look at... What he says, what you see in quotes on this side, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. It, it, it's very similar, but it's not quite the same. And that may be a differences in Hebrew and Greek, but I think more likely what we're seeing here is, is Paul quoting a concept more than he's quoting the actual word-for-word -word translation of, of, of whatever version of the Old Testament he was quoting. There are some people that indicate he's actually more referencing the entire 68th Psalm as a, as a concept. 
uh, one of the themes of which is this idea of a conquering leader, a conquering king who's victorious in battle, who's led people out of captivity, and now as takes the spoils of war, if you will, the spoils of this victory, and bestows them upon these people that he now is, is king over, is lord over. And so that's what we're seeing here with this idea, with talking about Christ ascending and descending, and what, 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 what does that mean? Well, I think he's talking about the, the fact that Christ was incarnated as a human being, who he died on the cross, he, again, he descended into the, the lower regions, the earth, whether he's talking about just the literal grave or whether he's talking about you know, the grave from the sense of, of Hades, doesn't really matter, I think. But talking about the fact that Jesus ascended and then now he's ascended, as we referenced those passages we read earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, where he talked about Christ being exalted, raised, resurrected, and exalted with God, that is what gives Christ the power and ability and authority and have that dominion to bestow upon his church, these various gifts. And so the source of our unity, not only those gifts and talents and abilities that we have that contribute to our unity, but also the fact that we are able to have unity in the first place. None of this matters without Christ. None of this matters without the work that God did in him, his eternal plan and his purpose. None of that matters. Unity doesn't matter without what Jesus Christ did for us. And so when he's talking about these gifts that he's given, he's talking about Christ's authority in doing so. And it only happens through him. And I hope that what we've had to say has been helpful to you in some way this morning as we consider our unity. This afternoon, we're going to cover the diversity in unity that we have. We're going to talk about the purpose of unity. And we're going to talk about the eventual goal of that unity as well. And I hope that you'll Join us for what should be a relatively short presentation this afternoon, but I hope this has been helpful to you in some way. And as we consider this idea of coming together as the body of Christ, we've talked about what makes that happen. We've talked about the fact that the commonality that we all have is our sin and nothing we can do about it. And we encourage you to, this morning, if you have never been obedient to the gospel, never joined the family of God, to make that choice today, to come together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, to make Jesus your true Lord and Savior, and to share that one faith and that one hope that all Christians have. If you want to do that or you need the prayers of the church for any reason, please come as we stand and sing.